I believe it's the Lord that's arranging this. And so I think there's something very special for this group here today, not only to receive, but also to give. We're going to spend, hopefully, a fair amount of time talking and interacting as well as receiving. And so I want to encourage you to let the gift that's in you, let the question that's in you, let the concern, let the prayer that's in you come, come out. All right? Today we will be looking at the three arenas of hostility. Now, that sounds kind of daunting. Good news is, because God addresses hostility with reconciliation, these are also the three arenas of reconciliation. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Otherwise, you should leave now. <laughs> I like, as Amy mentioned earlier, I like the word arena. My tendency as an abstract thinker is to say something like area, but that extra N really helps. Arena, not area. Why? Because it makes me think of a public battle. The hostility that characterizes our relationships is not private as much as we would like it to be. It is seen by all of heaven and it affects all the relationships that we're in, whether we think it does or not. It is a public battle. Reconciliation, then, is also not private. Now, that being said, privacy may be required for some of the work of reconciliation. That's certainly true. But the result of reconciliation will be seen by all, will be felt by all, will be experienced publicly, and they should be celebrated publicly. If you ask church leaders what is the one thing they could do that would immediately testify to society of the divinity of Jesus, how many would reply, become publicly reconciled with the church around the corner and publicly honor the streams of the body of Christ? But if I read Jesus' prayer in John 17 right, isn't this what he said would happen? Deep unity in the body of Christ would rightly be seen by the entire world publicly as proof that Jesus was sent by God. So today's talk is a continuation of the last time Amy and I spoke, which was in January. So if you remember, those of you who were here, others may have... Uh, watched it on the internet. Um, Amy spoke about unity of the Trinity brilliantly, and then I spoke on hostility, so unity and hostility. And in these, that talk, we introduced a working definition for our community of reconciliation um, and a series of New Testament packet passages that use the word reconciliation. There's not that many of them. So here's the definition again, and I'm going to pull the table over, hopefully. And I've got slides to do as well. So if all goes well, I can do this without too much disturbance. All right. In fact, maybe it'd be better if I... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... So here's the kind of working definition that we introduced in January. Would somebody with a loud... I'm going to have lots of public readings, so somebody with a loud voice, can you read this definition? 
a series of actions that removes hostility in a relationship, repairs the damage it caused, and restores God-intended unity. Good. Thank you, Jenny. So in January, we looked at the Pauline passages uh, drawn from the Pauline letters. What is Paul? Where does Paul use the word reconciliation, and what does it mean? And that led us to the idea of Christ the Reconciler. Actually, that's wrong. As I explained in that talk, Christ the Reconciler, naming this place Christ the Reconciler, led us to those passages. <laughs> kind of a backwards way. Let's look today at what Jesus says in Matthew. Because I think it's very interesting to say, look at what Jesus says, and see how it aligns with what Paul says. Um, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew is very clear in the connection between hostility and reconciliation. First of all, you know the pattern of the Beatitudes, right? You have heard that it was said, da 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 But I say to you, expand the definition a little. Therefore, here's what you should do. That's kind of the pattern that Jesus repeats multiple times through Matthew 5. Okay, does that make sense? Everybody remember that? So, for example, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who lusts has committed adultery already in his heart. Wow. Suddenly the definition expands. <laughs> and, and our ability to kind of opt out of what Jesus is saying diminishes rapidly. Okay? So let's see how Jesus applies the same pattern to murder. Murder is the ultimate act of hostility, right? This is from the Amplified Version, which I really like this passage in the Amplified. You have heard that it was said, there's the first part, to men of old, you shall not kill. No problem. I've never done that. And whoever kills shall be liable to and unable to escape the punishment imposed by the court. I'm off the hook. But, I say to you that everyone who continues to be angry with his brother or harbors malice, and then they've got this amplified parentheses, enmity of heart, against him shall be liable to and unable to escape the punishment imposed by the court. Wow. So, but I say to you, angry, malice, enmity of heart, and, oh, there's more, whoever speaks contemptuously and insultingly to his brother shall be liable to and unable to escape the punishment imposed by the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you cursed fool, you empty-headed idiot, shall be liable to and unable to escape the hell of fire. Therefore, if when you are offering your gift at the altar, you there remember that your brother has any grievance against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make peace with your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way traveling with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. 
So we can see that Jesus clearly extends hostility beyond physical violence. Look at the trace there. Killing gets extended. Anger, malice, enmity of heart, contempt, insult, fool, idiot. Is anyone in this room exempt from this set <laughs> of, of words? So I'm going to pass around a handout. These are, you'll, you'll be familiar to you, those of you who were here in January. So we also listed in January a set of words. So it's very similar to what Jesus does here, especially in the Amplified Version, which is to say, let's look at hostility. Hostility has, there's more to hostility than just a simple act of aggression. So if we can kind of send one around that way, take one each. Hopefully we'll have enough. If not, married couples share. Robin, can you send another set around the other way? And then, Sandy, if you'll kind of send this one down. With the inner circle, the inner, the inmost circle here. I'm so glad people sit on the couches. So the words in red, and we're going to use all through this retreat, Red means hostility. You'll see it appear in many different passages. And blue I've used as kind of resolution of reconciliation. So the words in red in the middle, on the, on the front side of the sheet, um, are hostility words. And then the words on either side are words of reconciliation. And so you can see, kind of if you look at that table on the front, you see unity, this is what Amy said, unity is where God starts, it's where the Trinity lives, and it's where the human relationship with God began. And it's what's intended, is unity. And so those words are beautiful words that we should be like, ah, oh, yes. But each one of those words has its pair, right? Or its antithesis. And so those are the words of hostility in the middle. Now, I put the dot, dot, dots in the middle to say, we're not attempting to exhaustively say this is everything. These are some examples. They're hopefully helpful examples. Okay? Now, I just noticed on the handout this morning, there's one of them that's highlighted. I didn't do that. I don't know how that got highlighted. But maybe God is speaking to us. We've asked him to speak. So I think it's the one that says trust, and then fear, and then trust. So... Some people in the room, that might be for you. <laughs> God highlighted that one. All right? But then, when we're in hostility, the good news is God brings, has the possibility of bringing reconciliation. And so we can move from those places of hostility to the place of unity. All right? So that's the purpose of that handout. So following Jesus' example with lust, we might say here, in this, back to Matthew 5, he who is angry commits or has already committed murder in his heart. Isn't that what Jesus says about adultery? If you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He who is angry has already committed murder in his heart. She who shows contempt commits murder in her heart. Those who exclude others have committed murder in their heart. That's kind of an extension of what Jesus is saying. Now, others of these words, you might look at the words there in red and say, well, this doesn't make sense. Well, others are, are more indicators of hostility. The result of hostility being committed against you. So, 
to turn it around a little bit, we might say, he who is insecure has suffered hostility. She who is jealous has suffered hostility. Those who are bitter have suffered hostility. Now, from the point of view of our responsibility to, to pursue reconciliation, it actually doesn't matter whether we are the committor of hostility or the committee of hostility. I like that, committee of hostility. Should we form a committee of hostility? In Matthew 5, here in this passage, Jesus says what? He says, go. If you're the committer, go. If your brother has a grievance against you, go to him. Right? Isn't that what it says? Now, I don't have a slide for it, but Matthew 18 says, if your brother wrongs you, if you're the committee instead of the committor, wait for him to come to you. No, that's not what it says. If your brother wrongs you, go and show him his fault between you and him privately. So that's very interesting. If, you're, if you've committed acts of hostility, you go pursue reconciliation. If they are committed against you, you go and pursue reconciliation. That is why I think this list of words in red is so helpful. Meditate, I encourage you to meditate on it. Sit with it at some point and ask the Holy Spirit, which of my relationships do these words describe? Stop and listen. You may be surprised. <laughs> you may not be surprised. You may already know. And when you learn that you're involved in hostility from either side, then you have a responsibility to go and pursue reconciliation as far as it is rest with you. Okay? But I'm actually getting ahead of myself because actions of reconciliation are the next talk <laughs> in September, and we're straying into that area. So let's go back. Today's topic is arenas of hostility. Oh, I've got a little arrow. Let's see where we are. So this just shows the connection between our definition and these passages. So hostility and damage get removed, repaired, and then unity restored by reconciliation. Okay. Now, in Matthew 5, this passage we've been looking at, what is the arena of reconciliation in terms of relationships in this passage? Does anybody pick up on that? If you have, just say it. Okay. Brother to brother. brother to brother. Good. So you can say, remember that your brother has any grievance against you. So that's, this is one of the arenas of hostility and reconciliation is brother to brother. Actually, it's the third one as, as I'm counting them. And I think you'll see later the reason that we count them this way. So what are the three? The three arenas of hostility and reconciliation. The first arena is between God and people. Paul's passages in this regard are very strong and direct. But these are the three arenas. And I included brother to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother, brother to sister. It's all there. Okay? The three arenas of hostility 
and also reconciliation. If you take a look at this, I think this as a community called to the Ministry of Reconciliation, this should be encouraging to us. Our calling is not insignificant. Who knows what God could do, what God has in his heart to do, if we remain faithful in what he has given to us. All of society is aware of hostility. All Christian or not Christian, read the headlines, listen to the radio, all of society is aware of the problem of hostility. And I feel like in a certain way, now more than ever, the Western world is grappling with how do we deal with this? They have no answers. There's no answer. They don't know. It's like, they should be nice, but they're not. What's happening? Now, of course, they're primarily focused on, you know, brother, this bottom one. And then also, I think there's an awareness of the man-woman hostility, if you see any movies. This one, top one, which is the key one, is not in the headlines. All right? But we have good news to all three. God has a response to hostility. This is really good news. His response is reconciliation. Okay? Now, we look at the arena of hostility and reconciliation, and you may be surprised that Catholic Protestant isn't listed. <laughs> did, anybody, did that occur to anybody? Like, wait a minute. We're a community of Catholics and Protestants praying together. This has been our focus kind of as a community in terms of reconciliation, of course, drawing from the fact that the Lord called Amy into the Catholic Church. I'm Protestant, and so we're, we live this out. Then Wittenberg developed, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, I'm going to speak more about this later when I get to the Pauline passages on reconciliation for brother to brother. Um, but I will say that that's where that fits. Reconciliation between the streams of the body of Christ is an extension or a part or an outworking of brother to brother arena. That's the arena it lives in. Okay? Finally, we have to ask, are these three arenas a coincidence? Is it an accident that the Greek word for reconciliation appears in all of these contexts and only in these contexts in the New Testament? Well, my opinion is no. And Amy is going to come talk to us a little bit about how hostility developed and develops in each of these three arenas. And as she speaks from the Old Testament, I think you will further see that these three arenas spoken of by Jesus and Paul are no accident. They're not an accident. In fact, they're ancient. So we added in to make area arena. Now we're subtracting letters to make accident ancient. They are no accident. They are ancient. All right. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, I was at Mass, and... Um, as soon as the gospel reading started, I was tempted to drift off into my own thoughts because I recognized it immediately. It was from John 10, and I love John 10, and I have all my own favorite thoughts about John 10. But um, right as I was about to drift off into my own thoughts, I felt the voice of the Holy Spirit said, why don't you listen? You might learn something this time. Thought, oh, okay, I'll listen. <laughs> and so I did, and I did learn something. Um, 
John 10 is a long passage and it's beautiful in many ways, but I was particularly drawn to this particular section. You want to put it up? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now there's a lot in this passage to say about true shepherds and higher hands, and I'll just say for the record that I think that's the main point of this passage. But what the Spirit drew my attention to this particular Sunday was the wolf. Because I had always thought about, well, we all know the wolf is, is a metaphor of the enemy, right? Um, the wolf is like the serpent. The wolf is the devil. The wolf is the enemy of our soul. Now, I always thought that a wolf's primary interest in a sheep was to eat it, right? The wolf comes, it eats a sheep, it's happy, it goes home um, until it's hungry again. So one, one sheep is enough for one wolf, at least for a week or so, right? You know? <laughs> um, but this passage says something very interesting. What does it say that the wolf comes to do? To scatter it. The wolf comes to scatter the flock. Why does the wolf scatter the flock? Possibly, and there, there are strategic things, but here's what, here's what I felt the Spirit saying. The wolf is scattering the flock because the wolf's real enemy is the shepherd. Because you know, the, wolf, the wolf will pick out, the wolf will devour whom he may devour, and he likes that. But it, it hurts the shepherd to scatter the sheep. It's an attack against the shepherd. Now, I would say that our enemy, the wolf, has been scattering the flock from the very beginning. It's the very first thing he did. It's, it's the plan. It's the enemy's plan. And yes, he would like to devour us, and he will, but he is more interested in creating chaos and division because when there is chaos and division among the children of God, our Father's heart hurts, right? So the story of the enemy scattering the flock goes back to Genesis, and we're going to read quite a bit of scripture here. I would like a... Um, narrator and a serpent and a woman. <laughs> I have <laughs> Okay, raise your hand if you'll be a narrator. Narrator. Okay, Reed can be the narrator. You can be the serpent, Kevin. <laughs> Congratulations. And Susan, will you be the woman? Sure. Okay, so go for it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be Open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So you see, the first fruit of our enemy's temptation was the introduction of a wrong kind of fear, and a fear that made men hide from God. The second result of this attack was a division between man and woman. Up to this time, Adam and Eve had been naked and not ashamed. And now they were covering themselves. They were hiding from each other. They were hiding from God. And even worse, they were blaming one another. And yes, they were blaming God. All right. Adam goes on to say, this woman you gave me, Adam says, she gave me the fruit to eat. And in that statement, Adam shifts blame to God and to Eve, and the flock is scattering. So can you see the first two arenas of hostility right there? Yeah. God recognizes the damage that's been done. The damage is done. It's done. And um, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I will give you my interpretation of this verse. I have heard many pastors throughout the ages say, see, this is the order that God intended. Men are to be in charge and women are to be in submission to them. I've heard that and I've probably heard it too. But I think it's fairly clear this is a curse. This is part of the curse. It is not God's curse, I don't think. I don't think God is, is saying, because you did this evil thing, I'm going to do this to you. I'm, it happened. It's, it's there. It's happened. It has happened. Um, you know, I, when I was in college, I was taking some sort of anthropology class, and uh, we were studying about early agricultural societies, and the professor said, you know, the plow was probably invented by a woman, and this really shocked me. Like, really, by a woman? He said, oh yeah, women do most of the agricultural work in most cultures because the men can make them do it. <laughs> um, and it's not, you know, it, it's, it, once again, it's, it's this power thing. Um, that doesn't mean that women are innocent. I mean, women, women have all sorts of um, frustrated desires, frustrated uh, intentions, anger. Women are not saints. That's not what I'm saying. But this, I'm saying this, this power, the subjugation, the struggle between men and women is a result of our sin. That's what I'm saying. Now, the opposite side of this in the kingdom of God, there is honor. There is submission. I am all for honor. I am all for submission because those are godly kingdom things, but lording over one another is a, is a curse. And I, I strongly believe, I, I actually, I believe God is healing. I believe that the, the church is, um, is growing in this dimension. I believe the church has come a long way here. I believe we have yet to see the fullness of unity God intended between man and woman. And I believe it's going to be a beautiful thing. Okay, oh, let's skip the page. Also, so once again, the, the God is surveying the chaos the serpent introduced, and God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Once again, is this a punishment? Well, yes, in a way, but I think it's also a mercy, because what if, what if Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life? What if we, I mean, really, seriously, do you want to live forever like this? Do you? <laughs> I don't. This is not the way I want to live forever. 
Um, and it, when I was teaching second grade one time, we were introducing the, the concept of law. And so I asked my second graders, why do we have to have laws? Oh, and one little girl raised the class and said, well, because we'd kill each other without them. And all the other kids, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> end of discussion, OK. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so in, in our fallen state, it would be a disaster for us to live forever. Now, does Jesus want us to live forever? Yes. Will we live forever? Yes. We are going to live forever with Jesus, reconciled to him. So what I would like to suggest to you in these stories, and we're going to read one more, is that when we find ourselves in painful relationships, when we find ourselves in painful relationships with our brothers, with our sisters, with our husbands, with our children, we are stepping into a very old story. I would like to suggest to you that your conflict with your husband or wife is not about his fault, and it's not about your brokenness. It's about the enemy scattering us. And I'm not to say we don't have faults and we don't have brokenness. We do. We do. But when we get it in our heads that this is, this is an act of spiritual warfare, the enemy is here, the enemy is, is at work, it um, gives us a different perspective. It gives us a different perspective. Like, okay, this is, there is more at play here than me and you. There is um, an enemy who desires our harm. There is also a savior who desires our reconciliation and who is very powerful. And I think any time we want to enter into reconciliation or any time we want to nurse a wound, we need to keep in mind the bigger picture. It's not just about me and you. It's about God and the devil, too. I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a big, big playing field. Um, and we'll talk more about that later and how to, how to fight that battle. But I think it's very good to recognize that it is a battle. Um, Pat Bailey, a couple of months ago, talked about, you know, about taking that stand, taking that stand in your mind. And when you understand that, um, it, it's very helpful. So we're going to look at one more story in the last arena about brother to brother. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have um, a broken relationship with God. We have a broken relationship between husband and wife. And yes, the first, the second generation of brothers kill each other. I mean, it's so sad. It's so sad and it's so true. It's so true, you know, depending on how, how literally you want to interpret Genesis, there's something so true and so right about this that in the beginning, man and woman found themselves at conflict and brothers killed brothers. That in the beginning, that, that's what happened. Okay, so let's read the, um, the last story. I liked that. Um, do we have some more volunteers? We, we need a narrator again. Narrator? Anyone? I'll be the narrator. You'll be the narrator? Uh, we need God. Anybody want to be God? Sure. <laughs> well, let's let Kevin be God, because he was the devil last time. Okay. <laughs> so, so um, Jenny, you can be Eve. You want to be Eve? Um, and now we need Cain. You be Cain? You be Cain? You be Cain? You be Cain? All right. All right. Let's go. Let's read. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, 
With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I, do not, I don't know. He replied, I, I, Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now there is so much we could say about this passage. I think there's so much pain that we recognize. I would imagine there is not one of us in here that doesn't feel, has not felt unfavored at some point, has not felt left out, has not felt treated misfairly. I would imagine there's not one person in this room that does not know jealousy. I bet there's not one person in this room who is not the victim of jealousy. In certain ways, we see once again, God is right there with Cain. God is reject Cain feels rejected by God. He feels like God is angry with him. But has, has God left Cain? No, he's right there with Cain. He is, he is right there whispering in his ears. He's talking to Cain. So there is a way. There is a way for you to be acceptable. You must master the sin. God is right there with Cain, but Cain feels rejected. He feels abandoned. And I think each of us is faced with the choice of Cain, sin knocking on our door, the, the temptation to nurse a wound, the temptation to feel like God has abandoned us. And yet the Lord is right there with us. He's warning us and calling us to hope, assuring us that we are accepted, that we can be accepted. Um, but he doesn't take our dignity away, just like he didn't take Cain's away. He says, but you must master it. You must choose. It's your choice. It's your choice. We don't know what was unacceptable about Cain's offering, but apparently he did because God says, if you do what is right, you can be acceptable. And Cain didn't scratch his head and say, I have no idea what you want. You know, that was not Cain's response. 
Cain's response was like, God is irrational, I cannot please him. That wasn't Cain's response, but for some reason he could not humble himself to do whatever that was. And that's the challenge I feel in my heart. Um, do I listen to the voice of the enemy, which in certain ways was very similar to the, what the, the temptation he whispered to Eve. You're, God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. He's got more for you. He's lying to you. Um, and we, those, the serpent is in this, this passage. God tells us sin is crouching at your door. He's crouching at your door. He, you know, the enemy is whispering your ear. You know what I mean. Um, and so that's the choice that we all face. Who to listen to? Who am I going to listen to? Am I going to come under the authority of the good shepherd? Or will I listen to the sin crouching at the door? For reconciliation between God and man, and of course you realize when I say man, I'm, the word people just somehow isn't as quite as poetic as God and man. It includes women, women as well. There's a series of actions. There's a process of reconciliation. Remember our definition. What is reconciliation? A series of actions. Now, my evangelical Protestant heritage tends to focus on the decision to follow Christ, that action, that point in the process. Now, this is a very important part of the process. I mean, prodigal son, you know, when he came to his senses, he turned around and went home. Absolutely critical part of the process. But it's not the only part of the process of reconciliation between God and people. There were actions of reconciliation before that decision, and there are actions of reconciliation after that decision. Now, the Catholic stream is stronger in the area of reconciliation after that decision. In fact, this may be news to some Protestants in the, in the crowd, but what we think of as confession, all Catholics go to confession. What is the name, official name for confession? The sacrament of reconciliation. That's what it's called in the theology of the church. So there's a sacrament of reconciliation that you practice over and over and over again, and that's a beautiful strength of our Catholic brothers and sisters, and probably something we Protestants could benefit from and learn from, right? But these actions that I'm talking about, the decision to turn to God, the, the, the sacrament, the process of reconciliation with God ongoing, are actually only a part of the story and not even the most important part. We're, those are the part where we remove our hostility towards God. Did you know that you have hostility towards God? Probably so, after Amy talked. <laughs> I encourage you to make it a high, the highest priority in your life to remove your hostility towards God. Let that be your number one ambition, to achieve the unity of the Trinity where hostility has been removed, where the damage it has wreaked in our souls has been healed and we're restored. God will repair the damage. He will restore union to ourselves. If we're for that, he is way, I mean, his energy added to our little saying yes, it will be done.
There's no question. But the most important act in the process of the reconciliation in the first arena was when God removed his hostility towards us. Does it surprise you that God has hostility? I mean, Amy, and once again, Amy and I are complimenting each other this morning because she said, you know, that the, the curse was just God stating the way it was. Well, I think that's true, but I also think there's some, there's some hostility, and rightfully so, from God towards man. There's an angel with a flaming sword. Now, was that for our benefit? Yes. Could that be considered an act of hostility? Yes. I have no better words to describe how God removed his hostility than were used by an anonymous writer of old. Some of you may have read this on Amy's Holy Saturday blog entry about the harrowing of hell. Now I want to read it again together. And as we do, look for the language of God's hostility towards sinful man being removed and how it is removed. Okay? And Michael, I'm wondering if I can ask you to read. It's a lengthy passage. Sure. Would you be willing to read it as I put the slides up? Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh, and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh, and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent, as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow the captives, Adam and Eve, he who is both God and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam, the first man he had created, struck his breast in terror and cried out to everyone, My Lord be with you all. Christ answered him, And with your spirit. He took him by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to arise. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person, and we cannot be separated. <clears throat> for your sake, I, your God, became your son. I, the Lord, took the form of a slave, 
I, whose home is above the heavens, descended to the earth and beneath the earth. For your sake, for the sake of man, I became like a man without help, free among the dead. For the sake of you who left a garden, I was betrayed in a garden, and I was crucified in a garden. See on my face the spittle I received in order to restore to you the life I once breathed into you. See there the marks of the blows I received in order to refashion your warped nature in my image. On my back, see the marks of the scorching I endured to remove the burden of sin that weighs upon your back. See my hands nailed firmly to a tree for you who once wickedly stretched out your hand to a tree. I slept on the cross and a sword pierced my side for you who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side has healed the pain in yours. My sleep will rouse you from your sleep in hell. The sword that pierced me has sheathed the sword that was turned against you. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life. But see, I who am life itself am now one with you. I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you. The throne formed by cherubim awaits you, its bearers swift and eager. The bridal chamber is adorned, the banquet is ready, the eternal dwelling places are prepared, the treasure houses of all good things lie open, the kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. Let's turn to arena two, man and woman. This came from Genesis 3, as Amy mentioned. The New Testament verse in 1 Corinthians 7 only speaks of the woman's responsibility, although as my dad pointed out, there's also a responsibility given to the man to not divorce. I think this has echoes of us as the bride needing to return and be reconciled to Christ, the bridegroom. But Paul, of course, was writing it about earthly marriage. He didn't make that connection in this passage. He does make it in Ephesians 5. So let me say first, as my dad also pointed out, this, this isn't only about women <laughs> seeking reconciliation. A man has a responsibility to pursue reconciliation in the marriage relationship as well. Men, please do not interpret this one verse as saying reconciliation is your wife's responsibility. I'd like to address the question in the context of man-woman, husband-wife, of justified versus unjustified hostility. I think this is an important thing to hold before us. I think a lot of energy is expended on the justification of hostility. Well, I was angry because for 13 years you have... Of course I became defensive. 
How else could I act around a man who's always accusing me? And so forth. The justification of acts of hostility. Now, it's not only physical or verbal energy <laughs> being expended. It's a significant amount of mental and emotional energy. Many is the night I have laid awake, creating conversations in my head in which I indisputably prove to my opponent that I was completely justified in my hostile actions. Now, somehow, the next day, the same words that were so brilliant in my mind in the night proved to be singularly unhelpful. Has anyone else had this experience? If, if, you, if you don't recognize it, then I've described it poorly. <laughs> I'm coming to believe that the energy spent on determining whether the hostility is justified or unjustified, and usually it's, I'm determining my hostility is, unjust, is justified, and then I'm also going to determine the hostility coming towards me is unjustified. So you've got both things going on. I'm coming to believe this energy is misplaced. The important point is that there is hostility. That's the important point. Here are three reasons why I'm beginning to think it's not that important to determine whether or not your hostility is justified. Number one, God has the ultimate justified hostility. Whose hostility is justified like God's hostility is justified? He has only ever intended our good. He's only ever guarded and guided. He's only ever protected. He's only ever watched over. And, and we who are loved, cherished, guarded, watched over, respond with enmity to God. His hostility towards us, any hostility he would have towards us would be justified. Our, if our hostility, if we think our hostility is justified towards another person, in this case, husband and wife, does it come to the level of the amount of justification that God's hostility towards us is justified? It could never. It could never. Now, what was his choice? His choice was to remove towards us the hostility. He had the ultimate justified hostility, and he chose not to act on it, but to, in fact, act to remove it through this passage we just read. You know, I, I've been thinking a little bit about the parable Jesus tells, and once again, this isn't the point of the parable, but Jesus says, anyone who sees an army coming their way looks at his own forces and says, do I have the strength to combat this army or not? And if they don't, then they send an embassy and sue for peace. Otherwise, the army's going to come and take them over and they'll be destroyed. Jesus told that parable. Well, in a certain way, what happened with God is he was the army coming and there was no way we would stand against him. And he himself became a man in the other camp. 
incarnate. And then he became the embassy back to himself to sue for peace. God removed his own hostility towards us. Are we ever going to have the same you know, level of justification? No. Well, how can we then justify maintaining our hostility when God himself, much more justified, chose to remove his own hostility? He is, after all, as Dallas Willard says, the smartest person who ever lived. Number two, Jesus diffuses the justification of hostility in John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery, brought to him. Was there some hostility in that situation? As in stones ready to throw. And that hostility was justified by the law and by the culture. Jesus, interestingly enough, demanded from them the same level of justification that God has. Anyone among you who is without sin can go ahead and throw the first stone. So Jesus there is basically saying, you've got to have the same level of justified hostility that God has in order to act on it. And then I would add the subtext, and even then God didn't act on it. Who are we to? Number three, I love this one. If we take our own justification into our hands, then we're removing it from Jesus' hands. Romans 8. Those he justifies, he also glorifies. So it's actually a really dumb thing to justify ourselves. Say, well, this is why I acted in this way. Don't you understand? I want you to understand why I did it. I, I, want, you, I want to be justified in your eyes, and I'm going to make my effort to justify myself. When Jesus is saying, okay, if you want to, but the option to that is to let me be the one who justifies you. Now, who would you rather have? Would you rather be a, your own self-appointed attorney in the court of God, or would you rather have the advocate, Jesus, standing there justifying you. Those he justifies, he also glorifies. I think it'd be really smart to let Jesus do the justification. So what do we do then? We're so accustomed in our marriages and our man-woman relationships to arguments and to, and to contention about justification, whether mental or verbal or probably always both. Well, let me suggest an alternate use of that energy. Let's develop as a community this discipline. Rather than spending energy, and it is energy, it's real work, justifying hostility, let's take that same energy and use it to pursue a course of reconciliation, which is also real work and takes real energy and real effort. Imagine what the world would look like if all the energy currently spent on justifying hostility where it was actually used to pursue reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, I want to honor a ministry nearby, an Elgin ministry, Rick Reynolds. 
This is a man who is pursuing reconciliation when there's hostility in the husband-wife relationship. Rick, we just bless you in the name of Jesus, and we thank God for you, and we pray that reconciliation would flourish and grow and have its great, the impact that is most on the heart of God for it to, for, for it to have in the world. All right, arena three, we're going to leave to this afternoon. 